Section 5, Chapter 24 of the History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by S.T. Macduff. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 24, Section 5. The faults of Montague were great, but his punishment was cruel. It was indeed a punishment which must have been more bitter than the bitterness of death to a man whose vanity was exquisitely sensitive, and who had been spoiled by early and rapid success and by constant prosperity. Before the new Parliament had been a month sitting, it was plain that his empire was at an end. He spoke with the old eloquence, but his speeches no longer called forth the old response. Whatever he proposed was maliciously scrutinized. The success of his budget of the preceding year had surpassed all expectation. The two millions which he had undertaken to find had been raised with a rapidity which seemed magical. Yet for bringing the riches of the city in an unprecedented flood to overflow the exchequer he was reviled, as if his scheme had failed more ludicrously than the Tory land bank. Emboldened by his unpopularity, the old East India Company presented a petition praying that the General Society Act, which his influence and eloquence had induced the late Parliament to pass, might be extensively modified. Howe took the matter up. It was moved that leave should be given to bring in a bill according to the prayer of the petition. The motion was carried by a 175 votes to a 148, and the whole question of the trade with the Eastern Seas was reopened. The bill was brought in, but was with great difficulty, and by a very small majority, thrown out on the second reading. On other financial questions, Montague, so lately the oracle of the Committee of Supply, was now heard with malevolent distrust. If his enemies were unable to detect any flaw in his reasonings and calculations, they could at least whisper that Mr. Montague was very cunning, that it was not easy to track him, but that it might be taken for granted that for whatever he did he had some sinister motive, and that the safest course was to negative whatever he proposed. Though that House of Commons was economical even to a vice, the majority preferred paying high interest to paying low interest, solely because the plan for raising money at low interest had been framed by him. In a dispatch from the Dutch Embassy, the States General were informed that many of the votes of that session which had caused astonishment out of doors were to be ascribed to nothing but to the bitter envy which the ability and fame of Montague had excited. It was not without a hard struggle and a sharp pang that the first Englishman who has held that high position, which has now long been called the leadership of the House of Commons, submitted to be deposed. But he was set upon with cowardly malignity by whole rows of small men, none of whom singly would have dared to look him in the face. A contemporary pamphleteer considered him to an owl in the sunshine, pursued and pecked death by flights of tiny birds. On one occasion he was irritated into uttering an oath. Then there was a cry of order, and he was threatened with the sergeant and the tower. On another occasion he was moved even to shedding tears of rage and vexation, tears which only moved the mockery of his low-minded and bad-hearted foes. If a minister were now to find himself thus situated in a house of commons which had just been elected, and from which it would therefore be idle to appeal to the electors, he would instantly resign his office, and his adversaries would take his place. The change would be most advantageous to the public, even if we suppose his successor to be both less virtuous and less able than himself. For it is much better for the country to have a bad ministry than to have no ministry at all, 
and there would be no ministry at all if the executive departments were filled by men whom the representatives of the people took every opportunity of thwarting and insulting that an unprincipled man should be followed by a majority of the house of commons is no doubt an evil but when this is the case he will nowhere be so harmless as at the head of affairs as he already possesses the power to do boundless mischief it is desirable to give him a strong motive to abstain from doing mischief and such a motive he has from the moment that he is entrusted with the administration office of itself does much to equalize politicians it by no means brings all characters to a level but it does bring high characters down and low characters up towards a common standard in power the most patriotic and most enlightened statesman finds that he must disappoint the expectations of his admirers that if he effects any good he must effect it by compromise that he must relinquish many favorite schemes that he must bear with many abuses on the other hand power turns the very vices of the most worthless adventurer his selfish ambition his sordid cupidity his vanity his cowardice into a sort of public spirit the most greedy and cruel wrecker that ever put up false lights to lure mariners to their destruction will do his best to preserve a ship from going to pieces on the rocks if he is taken on board of her and made pilot and so the most profligate chancellor of the exchequer must wish that trade may flourish that the revenue may come in well and that he may be able to take taxes off instead of putting them on the most profligate first lord of the admiralty must wish to receive news of a victory like that of the nile rather than of a mutiny like that of the nor there is therefore a limit to the evil which is to be apprehended from the worst ministry that is likely ever to exist in england but to the evil of having no ministry to the evil of having a house of commons permanently at war with the executive government there is absolutely no limit this was signally proved in sixteen ninety nine and seventeen hundred had the statesmen of the junto as soon as they had ascertained the temper of the new parliament acted as statesmen similarly situated would now act great calamities would have been averted the chiefs of the opposition must then have been called upon to form a government with the power of the late ministry the responsibility of the late ministry would have been transferred to them and that responsibility would at once have sobered them the orator whose eloquence had been the delight of the country party would have had to exert his ingenuity on a new set of topics there would have been an end of his invectives against courtiers and placemen of piteous meetings about the intolerable weight of the land tax of his boasts that the militia of kent and sussex without the help of a single regular soldier would turn the conquerors of landon to the right about he would himself have been a courtier he would himself have been a placeman he would have known that he should be held accountable for all the misery which a national bankruptcy or a french invasion might produce and instead of laboring to get up a clamor for the reduction of imposts and the disbanding of regiments he would have employed all his talents and influence for the purpose of obtaining from parliament the means of supporting public credit and of putting the country in a good posture of defense meanwhile the statesmen who were out might have watched the new men might have checked them when they were wrong might have come to their help when by doing right they had raised a mutiny in their own absurd and perverse faction in this way montague and somers might in opposition have been really far more powerful than they could be while they filled the highest posts in the executive government and were outvoted every day in the house of commons their retirement would have mitigated envy their abilities would have been missed and regretted their unpopularity would have passed to their successors who would have grievously disappointed vulgar expectation and would have been under the necessity of eating their own words in every debate 
the league between the Tories and the discontented Whigs would have been dissolved, and it is probable that in a session or two the public voice would have loudly demanded the recall of the best keeper of the great seal, and of the best first lord of the treasury the oldest man living could remember. But these lessons, the fruits of the experience of five generations, had never been taught to the politicians of the seventeenth century. Notions imbibed before the revolution still kept possession of the public mind. Not even Summers, the foremost man of his age in civil wisdom, thought it strange that one party should be in possession of the executive administration, while the other predominated in the legislature. Thus, at the beginning of 1699, there ceased to be a ministry, and years elapsed before the servants of the crown and the representatives of the people were again joined in a union as harmonious as that which had existed from the general election of 1695 to the general election of 1698. The anarchy lasted, with some short intervals of composedness, till the general election of 1765. No portion of our parliamentary history is less pleasing or more instructive. It will be seen that the House of Commons became altogether ungovernable, abused its gigantic power with unjust and insolent caprice, browbeat king and lords, the courts of common law and the constituent bodies, violated rights guaranteed by the great charter, and at length made itself so odious that the people were glad to take shelter under the protection of the throne and of the hereditary aristocracy from the tyranny of the assembly which had been chosen by themselves. The evil which had brought on so much discredit on representative institutions was of a gradual though of rapid growth, and did not in the first session of the Parliament of 1698 take the most alarming form. The lead of the House of Commons had, however, entirely passed away from Montague, who was still the first minister of finance, to the chiefs of the turbulent and discordant opposition. Among those chiefs the most powerful was Harley, who, while almost constantly acting with the Tories and high churchmen, continued to use, on occasions cunningly selected, the political and religious phraseology which he had learned in his youth among the roundheads. He thus, while high in the esteem of the country gentlemen, and even of his hereditary enemies, the country parsons, retained a portion of the favor with which he and his ancestors had long been regarded by Whigs and nonconformists. He was therefore peculiarly well qualified to act as a mediator between the two sections of the majority. The bill for the disbanding of the army passed with little opposition through the House till it reached the last stage. Then at length the stand was made, but in vain. Vernon wrote the next day to Shrewsbury that the ministers had had a division which they need not be ashamed of, for that they had mustered a hundred and fifty-four against two hundred and twenty-one. Such a division would not be considered as matter of boast by a Secretary of State in our time. The bill went up to the House of Lords, where it was regarded with no great favor. But this was not one of those occasions on which the House of Lords can act effectually as a check on the popular branch of the legislature. No good would have been done by rejecting the bill for disbanding the troops, unless the King could have been furnished with the means of maintaining them, and with such means he could be furnished only by the House of Commons. Summers, in a speech of which both the eloquence and the wisdom were greatly admired, placed the question in the true light. He set forth strongly the dangers to which the jealousy and parsimony of the representatives of the people exposed the country. But anything, he said, was better than that the king and the peers should engage without hope of success in an acrimonious conflict with the commons. 
Tankerville spoke with his usual ability on the same side. Nottingham and the other Tories remained silent, and the bill passed without a division. By this time the king's strong understanding had mastered, as it seldom failed after a struggle to master, his rebellious temper. He had made up his mind to fulfill his great mission to the end. It was with no common pain that he admitted it to be necessary for him to give his assent to the disbanding bill. But in this case it would have been worse than useless to resort to his veto. For if the bill had been rejected, the army would have been dissolved, and he would have been left without even the seven thousand men whom the commons were willing to allow him. He determined, therefore, to comply with the wish of his people, and at the same time to give them a weighty and serious but friendly admonition. Never had he succeeded better in suppressing the outward signs of his emotions than on the day on which he carried this determination into effect. The public mind was much excited. The crowds in the parks and streets were immense. The Jacobites came in troops, hoping to enjoy the pleasure of reading shame and rage on the face of him whom they most hated and dreaded. The hope was disappointed. The Prussian minister, a discerning observer, free from the passions which distracted English society, accompanied the royal procession from St. James' Palace to Westminster Hall. He well knew how bitterly William had been mortified, and was astonished to see him present himself to the public gaze with a serene and cheerful aspect. The speech delivered from the throne was much admired, and the correspondent of states-general acknowledged that he despaired of exhibiting in a French translation the graces of style which distinguished the original. Indeed, that weighty, simple, and dignified eloquence which becomes the lips of a sovereign was seldom wanting in any composition of which the plan was furnished by William and the language by Summers. The king informed the lords and commons that he had come down to pass their bill as soon as it was ready for him. He could not indeed but think that they had carried the reduction of the army to a dangerous extent. He could not but feel that they had treated him unkindly in requiring him to part with those guards who had come over with him to deliver England, and who had since been near him on every field of battle. But it was his fixed opinion that nothing could be so pernicious to the state as that he should be regarded by his people with distrust distrust of which he had not expected to be the object after what he had endeavoured, ventured, and acted to restore and to secure their liberties. He had now, he said, told the houses plainly the reason, the only reason, which had induced him to pass their bill, and it was his duty to tell them plainly, in discharge of his high trust, and in order that none might hold him accountable for the evils which he had vainly endeavoured to avert, that in his judgment the nation was left too much exposed. When the commons had returned to their chamber, and the king's speech had been read from the chair, Howe attempted to raise a storm. A gross insult had been offered to the house. The king ought to be asked who had put such words into his mouth. But the spiteful agitator found no support. The majority were so much pleased with the king for promptly passing the bill, that they were not disposed to quarrel with him for frankly declaring that he disliked it. It was resolved without a division that an address should be presented thanking him for his gracious speech and for his ready compliance with the wishes of his people, and assuring him that his grateful comments would never forget the great things which he had done for the country, would never give him cause to think them unkind or undutiful, and would on all occasions stand by him against all enemies. Just at this juncture tidings arrived which might well raise misgivings in the minds of those who had voted for reducing the national means of defense. The electoral prince of Bavaria was no more. 
The Gazette, which announced that the disbanding bill had received the royal assent, informed the public that he was dangerously ill at Brussels. The next Gazette contained the news of his death. Only a few weeks had elapsed since all who were anxious for the peace of the world had learned with joy that he had been named heir to the Spanish throne. That the boy just entering upon life with such hopes should die, while the wretched Charles, long ago half-dead, continued to creep about between his bedroom and his chapel, was an event for which, notwithstanding the proverbial uncertainty of life, the minds of men were altogether unprepared. A peaceful solution of the great question now seemed impossible. France and Austria were left confronting each other. Within a month the whole continent might be in arms. Pious men saw in this stroke, so sudden and so terrible, the plain signs of the divine displeasure. God had a controversy with the nations. Nine years of fire, of slaughter, and of famine had not been sufficient to reclaim a guilty world, and a second and more severe chastisement was at hand. Others muttered that the event which all good men lamented was to be ascribed to unprincipled ambition. It would indeed have been strange if, in that age, so important a death, happening at so critical a moment, had not been imputed to poison. The father of the deceased prince loudly accused the court of Vienna, and the imputation, though not supported by the slightest evidence, was during some time believed by the vulgar. End of section 5 Recording by S. T. Macduff